The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, The Economist asks how companies can keep employees happy, fulfilled and high-performing. Generous perks and luxury office environments are associated with Silicon Valley tech startups. But far beyond the geek business, employers are anxious to retain their best staff, as globalisation makes it a lot easier for the most sought after to move around. Still, a new survey suggests that even ergonomic amenities aren't enough to keep workers satisfied. According to one recent survey, just under a fifth of tech employees said that their jobs made them feel happy. So what does it actually take to keep the most motivated staff and which companies are doing the best at retaining top talent? With me to discuss that is Gareth Jones, a fellow at the London Business School and co-author of a book, Why Should Anyone Work Here? What It Takes to Create an Authentic Organisation. And I'm also joined by Adrian Wooldridge, our management editor and Schumpeter columnist. Gareth, let's start with you. Your book asks rather bluntly why anyone should work where they do, and doubtless many of us at different times in our career have asked ourselves that question. What are the main attributes that make a workplace worth working in? Well, if I could just backtrack and explain the title a little. A while ago, we wrote a book called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You, which um, concluded that to be an effective leader, you needed to be yourself more with skill. In other words, it sort of argued that authenticity was a necessary but insufficient condition for the exercise of leadership. However, clever people have responded by saying, I'll be authentic when I work in an authentic organisation. But since I don't, I'll go on being the same political player I've been for the last 15 years. So about five years ago, we started to ask people, I would say mainly but not exclusively executives, well, you tell us what an authentic organisation would look like. And this book reports the findings of that research. Adrian, Gareth has started there with that idea of authenticity. Is that an idea that makes much sense to you in the context of analysing modern workplaces? Well, I would argue that one of the most important skills you need as a leader is to be inauthentic. You need to be willing to pretend to like people you don't like. You need to be willing to pretend to be happy when you're not happy or at least reasonably cheerful when you're not cheerful. You have to be an impresario of impressions. And that doesn't mean being authentic. It means making the right impression on people because being a leader is a role that you need to inhabit. How's that going for you, Adrian? Not very well. Gareth, is is that a reasonable critique that the talk of authenticity doesn't really reflect the reality of how a lot of people feel about their workplaces. I think it means that Adrian and I have different conceptions of what it is to be authentic. And there's been a kind of bifurcation in the North American view of authenticity and the European view. So in the United States, authenticity comes very close to be yourself. And the point of our book is that you need to be yourself skillfully. That is to say, it is a role performance. So I agree with Adrian that being an effective leader is about playing roles. And by the way, In our lives, we all play different roles. We're husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, tennis players, politicians, economists, and so on. Our behavior in all those roles is not the same. We found that there were six characteristics of authentic organizations. One of them we we call difference beyond diversity. I can be myself at work. Difference beyond diversity. So this isn't the HR agenda of 
you know, how many disabled, how many women, how many ethnic minorities do we have? This is about the ability to be yourself. Radical honesty, tell me the truth before someone else does. And our view, I think, is that in the world of WikiLeaks and social media, you better tell the truth before someone else does. Extra value, add value to me, don't exploit me. Authenticity, mean what you say and say what you mean. Meaning, I want a meaningful job in an organization which itself has meaning. And finally, and perhaps the most difficult of all in the modern world, simple rules, not a fog of bureaucracy. Adrian, how many of those do you recognise from companies you analyse? How many of them make sense? Well, I think that they do make sense in this sense that some companies are desperate to recruit talented people because there aren't enough talented people around. And in order to do that, these rules that, uh, that Gareth has outlined are very good rules. I think what people want is to be valued, to, to, to be told the truth, to have a meaningful set of jobs. But one thing that worries me about this is that we're moving from a world in which there's a, perhaps a, a shortage of talent to a world in which there's not enough demand for talent. We're moving to a very, very difficult sort of job market, like the tech world. We're going to see in Silicon Valley over the next few months a lot of unicorns going, going out of business or seeing their, their values collapsing. So in a sense now, what you want is not a meaningful job or a value-added job, but a job. Well, of course, that's true, because most people don't have a choice about where they work. They're forced into their jobs by the existing um, structure, social structures. And of course, in their jobs, when they're what Durkheim calls the forced division of labour, they're not very happy. And in fact, the latest data on people's satisfaction at work is depressing. And if you think about converting that level of dissatisfaction into wasted productivity or lost productivity, it's a colossal problem. Now, in sort of HR, we've given this fancy names for executives a long time, you know, burnout, executive stress, derailment. But it is associated with lots of social problems, addictive behavior, marital dysfunction, and indeed unhappiness is a huge economic cost. There's quite a lot in that bag there. Adrian, is it clear that being unhappy leads to lower productivity, for instance? No, it's not clear in absolute terms. I think sometimes when you have a company that's in crisis, um, if you have very authoritarian, almost uh, dictatorial leaders who are solving the problems of the company, they might make everybody miserable for a time, but if they rescue the company from collapse, that's quite a good thing. I think we're talking about a world in which you have expanding demand and a fairly good market. In such a nice world, I think being happy does lead to, to productivity in general. I think but that, you that, seem that, to be true. saying we haven't got such a nice world. So, so what is then your conclusion that, that employers don't need to work so hard to keep their employees happy? My conclusion is exactly that. I think we're moving towards a very difficult world, a world in which your tech stocks are going to start collapsing over this year and in which the boot is very much on the foot of the employer. And they don't need to think about things like, are my workers happy? They just need to think about hiring people for less pay. (laughs) Oh dear for your thesis. No, not at all. Uh, I don't think this is about creating happy workplaces, by the way. I think this is about creating sustainably successful workplaces. And by the way, of course, Adrian's right that for very short periods, for example, under conditions of siege, you can get away with all kinds of stuff. Sociologists have been studying this for a very long time. The interesting thing about conditions of siege, however, is that they don't last for very long. So the issue becomes, how do you create sustainably successful companies? So one of the companies that we talk about rather positively in the book is a company called Novo Nordisk 
which is the world's largest supplier of insulin. Uh, when I first started working with them, they were the 17th largest pharma company in the world. They're now the seventh largest pharma company in the world. And I haven't run the numbers, but I suspect that you could argue they're the most successful capitalist enterprise in the world in the and last 20 years. And what's specific about the way they treat their staff? They take this stuff really seriously. So they're constantly striving on all of those dimensions. And by the way, they don't succeed on all of them. I think because of their very powerful Danish roots, they really struggle with difference beyond diversity. I think of the top 30 executives in Novo Nordisk, 25 of them are middle-aged Danish white males. So they really struggle with that, but they recognize that's a big, big issue. On the other dimensions, they score really rather well. I don't think this is about happiness, actually. This is about sustainably successful organizations. I've been to visit Novo Nordisk, and I would say that they were a fairly happy bunch. I mean, it's a very nice place to, to work. It's an extremely successful company. And one of the things that they've done is to take uh, very well-educated, very well-motivated workers and discover a global niche, which for many years now has been expanding. These things feed into each other, but the, the, the fact that the workers are well-motivated and, and have a positive attitude to their job is, is obviously a good thing. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very Im- impressive company. I'm not sure about authenticity. I am sure that a very powerful culture in which people feel valued and feel a sense of commitment to a common goal is a very important thing. I wanted to ask you both whether you felt that when you walk into a company, this sort of thing leaps out at you, or is it the sort of thing you have to research for a column in The Economist or indeed write a a book about? Can you tell when you walk into a workplace, Gareth, what's on the other side of the wall? No, I I think you need to hang around, actually. Uh, A long time ago, I wrote a paper, sadly unpublished, called Lurking as a Research Method. And I do think that if you really want to understand a company, you have to find a way of hanging around. And it's often what people will say over a coffee or, depending on the context, over a beer. It's their unconsidered remarks. My my co-author, Rob Goffey, wrote a book a little while ago called Reluctant Managers, in which he interviewed people at work about their work. And at work, they mouthed kind of corporate slogans. And then he interviewed them again at home. And he got completely different data. So I I don't think it's a matter of walking in and going, ha ha, this seems authentic. I think you have to hang around and get the full story. Adrian? Being a journalist, I tend to judge things on their first impressions. And I do think the first impressions of going into a company, as as with Novo Nordisk, you get a certain sense of of competence and a general ethos of people knowing that their business is going quite well. But yes, the longer you hang around, the better. Gareth Jones and the still moderately happy Adrian Wooldridge, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.